My favorite thing of Thanksgiving is learning how to pronounce pecan pie. Where I'm from, we say pecan pie, which I get the whole joke, like blah, da, 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 da. But nonetheless, name is Brandon Zisky. Welcome. That's your first introduction. If you never met me, lovely. It's a little bit about who I am, but our heartbeat as a church is to be simply all about Jesus. And I hope that this morning, this becomes clear to you, why that phrase matters. Why it matters that we are simply about Jesus as a church, and why our mission is to help people to meet, know, and follow Jesus. This morning, we're wrapping up kind of like our whole fall focus of what does it mean? What does it look like to enjoy God? In the last two weeks and this morning, the third week, is we're looking specifically at the concept of enjoying God and trying to get our brains and our minds and our hearts around this notion. And we started a few weeks ago by looking a little bit at like the Westminster Catechism when it talks about like the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, which is this notion of saying like our ultimate purpose of being is to glorify God. And as we do so, we enjoy him forever. And I like the way like John Piper kind of like summarized that statement in his own words where he says, God is most glorified when we are most satisfied in him. And I've been chewing on that statement a lot. And there's so many parts, like on the surface, you read it, you're like, ooh, that feels weird. But the more you think about it, the more you meditate on it, the more you ask questions about it, you realize, oh my goodness, the best way to glorify God is for me to really enjoy him. And God wants us to enjoy him because the greatest thing he can give us is himself. And eternity is knowing Jesus. And the more we know him, the more we enjoy him. The more we enjoy him, the more we glorify him. It's a beautiful notion. But as we've been looking at this, it's like we've been missing it. Like the church is not like when people say like, hey, give me two words or three words to describe church. Most often, joy is not one of the three words, which is a shame because we've been given an invitation to the greatest gift in the whole world, which is a relationship with our creator, which there's nothing better than that. We've been given this gift of salvation where we've been saved from eternal hell and separation from the presence of God. And we've been given like the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, to lead us, to sanctify us, to transform us, to empower us. Like there's so many things that we have in our lives that we should be joyful always regardless. And so this is why we need to be looking at this. We need to understand what does it mean to be in relationship with God. Now, it's Thanksgiving. I don't know about you, but one of the traditions in the Ziski household is we like to go around the table and share a little bit of what we're grateful for, right? Like, I'm not, like, badgering on any of the stuff. Like, these are all good things. But, like, if you were to start, like, listing things that you're thankful for, and we start to kind of, like, place our faith on that, we would most often be saying, I'm thankful for God in that he did X, Y, and Z. I'm thankful for his goodness, or I'm thankful for his faithfulness. And then we might even, like, get specific and start to itemize, like, how was he good and how was he faithful? I started thinking about that and I went, how come we don't often say, I'm thankful that I get to be in relationship with God? We find ourselves more often than not saying, I'm thankful for the things that God does, which is great. Those are all good. But very rarely do we say, I'm thankful that I'm a friend of God. 
I'm thankful that I am saved. I'm thankful that I am an adopted son or daughter of the Most High. That's a fascinating thought for me. Because I was thinking about this, and then I go, okay, is this maybe where the church is missing it? Where we don't really understand what does it mean to be in a relationship with God? Or even understanding the importance of relationships, period. Like, it is not a profound or a lofty statement to simply say that relationships matter. They're essential for human flourishing. Like, we were created to long and desire and to need relationships. Like God created us in his image. And God, part of his image is he's a triune God, three in one, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're in perfect harmony, perfect unity. They enjoy themselves supremely. I don't understand how all of that works, but there is great joy and love in that that he had to create in order for us to, like, to, part- uh, to participate in this joy that he has. And so as we're created in the image of God, we were created for relationship, primarily with him. But also as we see in Genesis, specifically chapter 2, that we also were created for companionship. Because in the garden, God looked at Adam and it wasn't like he made a mistake. He says it's not good for man to be alone, which has given us an insight into how he designed us. And so he created Eve as a companion. And in this context, it starts to show us the profound mystery of marriage where two become one. But it wasn't isolated to just marriage because we're created ultimately for relationship, companionship. The book of Proverbs is loaded with talking about the blessings and the good things that come out of healthy and joyful relationships. This is essential for us. And we know this. We long for these types of moments in our life to have these deep, meaningful connection points. That's why I love holidays. Like, the... I won't go there. I was going to say, there's a love-hate with that, but we won't go there. That's another time for another conversation. But I want you to think about your life for a moment, okay? Think about what have been some of your greatest longings, some of your deepest longings. What have been some of your greatest joys? What have been some of your most... um, painful hurts in your lives, or even some of like the really strong desires in your life. Would it be fair to say that the majority of those revolve around a relationship? Like this matters so much. And I'm going to beat this over and over and over because I want us to understand the profound mystery of what God invites us into. We long and we desire to be known, to be loved, to be seen, to be wanted, not for what we can do or what we can add to a relationship, but we long to be wanted just for who we are, right? And at the same time, we actually long for that in another person. We want to want somebody just for who they are, not just for what they can add or contribute to our own lives. Today, we are more connected than ever due to social media and technology. But as good as it is, it's also created, as we now know, an epidemic of loneliness that was never foreseen when they invented it. 
This phenomenon scientists have shown through research studies, specifically the millennial generation, have, have been the most impacted by social, social media. And it doesn't take long to understand why. Like the development of social media and when it was like starting to take off was during the de- developmental, I can talk this morning, I promise you, the stages of development for the millennials. And so they were not under, they, they were trying to figure out how to relate when all of these things like Facebook started to show up and the tension between like, are you now my friend? Do I have 150 friends? And why did they unfriend me? And all these things started to come up. And so they've been now dubbed through science and research that they are now, the millennials are called the loneliness generation. It's fascinating when you look at these studies, Gen Z and the other generation that's below them, they still have all of these tools at their disposal, right? But there's now they recognize the deficiency of a relationship that they produce and there's a deeper longing for authentic community and authentic relationship. This is a a fascinating thing. Like even like COVID, anybody remember COVID? Look it up if you don't remember. Um, it exasperated loneliness. Like depression, rampant. And the only means of relating that we had was either whoever was in your home or social media. And there's only so much that you can do through social media. It exasperated it. We know this. So now, these days, like, there are friendship coaches. There are apps designed just to make friends. These are all good. I'm not making any kind of judgment on them, but I'm bringing this up because there's an instinctive longing, knowing that we were created for friendship. Now we need to take that understanding amongst ourselves and go, if we were created in the image of God, what does that mean in our relating and interacting with God? So I was curious to know what the experts would say on their interwebs and say how essential these relationships are and even how to develop an authentic and deep relationship. And so here are some of the findings that they've discovered over years of, of like research on this. None of them are earth-shaking. The first thing that's on the top of the list in order to develop friendships is an accumulation of time. You need to spend time with the person. Duh, right? But they actually were able to discover that it takes about 40 to 60 accumulated hours to turn an acquaintance into a casual friend. And about 80 to 100 hours, uh, accumulated hours, to turn that casual friend into a deep friendship. This can happen quickly or over a span of time. But that is only one piece to the puzzle because you need accumulated time. But there needs to be two other facets to this where it's called attention and intention. Like I need to give concentrated attention and intentionality. I need to give energy, emotion. I need to make space for it. Like I have to put my heart into it. I have to be vulnerable. I have to try to be reciprocal in what is being shared with me. That is all part of this process. And we know this. Like our deepest friendships are those who get the most time, right? Even interrupted time. We don't mind if our best friend interrupts us at two in the morning. But if you're just a casual acquaintance and you knock at my door at two in the morning, I'm calling the cops. 
right? Like, we understand that, but at the same time, I need to give attention to you, right? There's, there's nothing worse than, like, pretending you're listening, right? Or, like, you ever have that, like, if friend or acquaintance that you're like, they're never really listening to me, right? Or you feel like you're the one always taking the initiative in that friendship, right? That, I guarantee you that friendship isn't going too far, and so these are three variables that are needed in order for friendships to, uh, to go deep. There has to be intentional effort with intentional action. So just as there's friendship builders, there's friendship killers. So I want to highlight three, and this is going to make sense real soon, I promise you. Three killers that I want to make note of this morning. Busyness. Busyness will kill friendships. It will make them shallow. Because when you're busy, you're distracted. And distraction only leads to shallow relationships. Because when you're ultimately distracted, you're pulled in multiple directions, and you're not going to want to be vulnerable. And then there's the have-it-your-own-way mentality. You see, we live in this world of affluence and options, right? Like, there are so many things at our disposal, so many things that eat up time like no other, right? Even if it's just not even scheduled time, like, there's the pre-stuff that you got to go through, like, oh my goodness, do I have everything ready? What's this meeting going to be like? I got to get this person over here. So you, even before the actual thing's happening, you're actually spending time in your brain, wasting that energy and anxiousness there. And the, even after the fact, you're still processing some of those things because now you're exhausted, you need to recoup, and all that kind of stuff. But if that's not enough, and you don't feel like you're just going from here to there, here to there, here to there, we have these beautiful contraptions called phones, where everything and everyone has immediate access to your life. There's positives, oh, and there's great negatives. Did you know there's a phobia if you're not near your phone enough. It's called, I kid you not, nomophobia. And I went, what does that mean? And I was like, oh, no mobile phone phobia. It's basically an anxiousness that happens when you're not near your phone. Confession time, I have nomophobia. My wife tries to tell me I do, and because she's not here, I'm not going to say it to her, but I do, even though I tell her I don't. You're addicted to your phone. No, I'm not. You are. (laughs) Right? Like, anybody ever do that? You're always on your phone. No, I'm not. So are you. But I don't know why this thing comes with me everywhere. Embarrassing confession. It comes with me in the shower. Nomophobia. That's me, right? And, and they, there was a study on this about like how, how this affects us. And this was like a study that happened three years ago. I'm willing to bet that these numbers aren't the same anymore. They're probably higher. The average person checks their phone 81,500 times per year. That equates to 4.3 minutes. Every 4.3 minutes, the average person checks their phone, which means you're going to check your phone eight times before I'm done. (laughs) Distraction makes relationships nearly impossible. 
So what does this say about friendships? If time, attention, and intention are key to developing friendships, if we remain busy and distracted, man, I'm just our friendships, our relationships will shallow. But then there's that Burger King philosophy of have it your own way. Did you know in 2008 and 2009, some of you may recall this, I surely do, the Burger King did this social media campaign called the Whopper Sacrifice. Okay, anybody remember? Okay, here it is. This is what they did. They said, if you would defriend or unfriend 10 people, we will give you a coupon for a free Whopper. And when you unfriend them, Burger King will do the service of messaging your former friend that they chose a Whopper over the friendship. (laughs) True story. So every friend that you unfriended is only worth a tenth of a Whopper. Over 234,000 people were unfriended during this campaign, and then Facebook shut it down. Like, it's just phenomenal to me, and it just made me start thinking about this, like how, how true it is that we oftentimes will choose the whopper over a friendship. Here's where I'm going with this. This all applies directly with our relationship with God. All of it. All of it. We were created to be in relationship with him. We need relationship with him. We were created to be in relationship with each other. And this is not a relationship of duty or religious performance, but it's a relationship that is actually defined as a friendship. There's a familial connection also between being adopted as a son and daughter. But I want to highlight the concept of a friendship with God. Our story from Genesis 3 onward has been one where you and I will choose the whopper over friendship with God. Adam and Eve didn't have the whopper. They had a fruit. And they chose that. This is why this matters. Because ever since that choice, you and I, since we're created to long for enjoyment and pleasure and fulfillment, because this relationship is severed, because now sin has entered our hearts, we're constantly in pursuit of trying to find whatever it is that will finally fully satisfy the longings in our hearts. That's why we're so busy. And that's why we get so easily distracted because every shiny thing, we start to go, maybe it'll be this. Maybe this friendship will be that. Maybe it'll be here. And we keep pursuing all of these things to only find out that they come short. They're always going to be empty. And to the degree that we miss out on relationship with God will be to the degree that we miss out in understanding what joy and peace is. So this morning, I want us to understand just how much God loves you. And from that, I want to show you a story in the gospel of Luke of how we can learn to choose friendship with Jesus, okay? So we're going to start in the Gospel of John. So let's go to John 15. And as you do, and as you just went, that was the longest introduction ever. I know, I agree, I would have got an F in seminary and preaching class for that, but there was a point. John 15 comes towards the end of Jesus' time with his disciples, and he's sharing with them some profound truths that need to get penetrated and embedded into our hearts. But before we go there, I want to share the most popular verse that's probably out there, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world 
that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him or whoever trusts on him will have eternal life. Why did God send his son to the world? Well, he, he attended to our needs. We're sinful. Our deeds are done in darkness. There's a separation. And so because he loved, he gave the greatest thing. He sent his son to die in our place, to take on our debts so that we could be justified, so that there's a way, an invitation extended to us by grace to be made right, to have a new life, to be born again. This is the only place where we can find peace and joy and fulfillment and longing. This is the heart of God. If we miss this peace, we miss all of this. God so loved the world. Don't allow familiarity just run that one right through your head. Yep, God so loved the world, he gave us one of his own. No, no, sit on it. God so loved you. Has anyone ever died for you? Like, especially when you don't deserve it. Have you ever received something that you absolutely don't deserve? Maybe in a marriage. Has a spouse ever forgiven you for a really stupid thing you did? And when you experience that forgiveness, you're like, I don't deserve that. You're right, you don't. It's grace. How much more with God? For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. All of this. This is God taking the initiative. This is God's idea to restore and reconcile humanity. All the way back in Genesis 3, when Adam and Eve chose the whopper over a relationship with God, God came. God pursued. God attended to their need. He sacrificed an animal, covered them, and also then made a prophecy of the one to come in Jesus. That's what we see in John 3. Friends, we can only love because he first loved us. This is his doing. You have to understand this. Otherwise, Christianity is miserable. Any religion is miserable. But Christianity can be the only one full of joy and peace because of his grace. You have to grab hold of that. I love 1 John 4 where it starts to talk about the love of God. And it's absolutely beautiful. I'm going to read this. 1 John 4, 8 through 10. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. God's love was revealed among us this way. Well, how was it revealed? Well, God sent his one and only son into the world so that we might live through him. Love consists in this, not that we loved God, but that he loved us freely, unconditionally. We didn't deserve it. And he sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. We jump to verse 16. And we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. In this, love is made complete with us so we may have confidence in the day of judgment. And in the day when we see God face to face, we don't have to flinch because we know he loves us. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love. Instead, perfect love drives out fear. 
That's why Paul says in Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus because you are loved by him. There's no fear in love because fear involves punishment. So the one who fears is not complete in love. We love because he first loved us. Human flourishing and our greatest purpose in enjoying God comes from his initiative. It comes from him. God attended to our needs. Remember, accumulation of time, attention, and intention are key to building relationship. This is him. This is what God does in our lives. He attends to the needs and he moves with great intention. I love John 15. In, in fact, I'm just going to be honest with you. For years, for years, I've read John 15, and I would say in a posture that wasn't right. And I don't know if maybe you can resonate with that. And so let's, let's look at this together. In John 15, starting with verse 1, we're going to go through verse 1 through 8 here. I am the true vine, and my Father is the gardener. Every branch in me that doesn't produce fruit, he removes and prunes every branch that produces fruit, so that will produce more fruit. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, and I in you, just as a branch is unable to produce fruit by itself unless it remains on the vine, neither can you unless you remain in me. I am the vine, you are the branches, the one who remains in me, and I in him produces much fruit, because you can do nothing without me. If anyone doesn't remain in me, he's thrown aside like a branch and he withers. They gather them, throw them into the fire, and they are burnt. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you produce much fruit and prove to be my disciples. So, for years, my tendency when I would read this and my first initial thoughts would be this. This is what I need to do to please God. Like, that's how I read this. It was like, here's an instruction manual of what you need to do. This is all on you, right? Like, there's even like this weird fear motivating factor. Like, hey, if you're not attached to the, you know, the vine, you're going to wither. We're going to cut you off. We're going to throw you in a fire. Oh, that's lovely, right? Didn't we just read there's no fear in perfect love? But like, somehow, like, I'm using this motivation as a means of fear. Like, I, I, I gotta do some stuff. Like, yes, Jesus is the vine. I get it. I understand. He's like the trunk of the tree. The Father is the gardener. He's the one that prepares the soil, plants the seeds, waters, he weeds, he prunes, gathers the fruit. And my job, my job, my job is to produce fruit. If I read this without remembering God's intentions towards me, I will quickly begin to believe I'm responsible for the production of fruit. I'm responsible for all of this. But friends, that's nothing but my own insecurity, pride, sin, shame, and guilt flaring up. I have to remember God so loved the world. He came towards me. But here's what I ended up believing every time I would read this. I have to produce in order to get God's attention. And once I get God's attention, therefore, I will get God's blessings. Because he says, like, hey, if you do this and you remain in me, ask whatever you wish. But I got to remain. I got to produce fruit. I got to do all of this. 
And I found this tension inside of me constantly because I would find myself asking this question. What does remaining in him even mean? Yeah, it's a great verse. We know abide in me. He's divine. We've got posters that show Jesus as divine. But what does it mean to abide? For years, I used to always think it meant do good things. Like be a good Christian, have a quiet time before 7 a.m., make sure you journal at least 150 words, have your daily prayers every now and then, smile at a stranger, serve at church, attend church, give some money, do some things. I'm abiding in Jesus. And fruit will happen. Like, that's how I used to think. And then I would read, like, apart from him, I can do nothing. Whoo, I better get my religious A game on. Right? I have to do this because if not, I'm good for nothing. I'll be thrown out, burned. But if I remain, then I got his attention. All right. Here we go. How can I prove to be one of his disciples? That last verse. Like, I'm like, I got to prove this. I got to. So much has led me down that path that led me to a place of not really enjoying God. Because if it's on me, if it's on me to produce fruit, and if it's on me to always, like, it's my choice, my religious duties in order to abide and to do Christian-y things, Oh my goodness, if it's all on me, I'm going to feel woefully inadequate all the time. And then I'm going to constantly feel like I'm falling short. And then I'm going to always feel like I'm failing. And then I'm going to be like, I ain't going to give that much. I'll just hold back. But that's not what it means to be in relationship with Jesus. This teaching is an invitation and the command at the same time. Yes, the father's the gardener. He does the planting. And, and Jesus was the holy seed, as you, if you would. Like, he came up. And because of Jesus, right, he's the true vine. Because he died and resurrected, now when we receive the invitation to walk into this reconciliation and this newness of life, we get grafted into the vine. That's not of our doing. That's of his doing. And as we learn to trust on him for the forgiveness of our sins and to learn how to walk in the newness of life, man, our life and our vitality flow from the root system through the vine into the branches because the branches can't produce anything on their own. Their only role is to take the life source from the vine into the branch so the branch could produce fruit. So I'm not responsible for producing fruit. With me? That began to change a little bit of how I saw this. And I started to see God's grace and God's love in this. Because to remain in him, to abide in him, and to produce fruits, and to prove to be his disciples isn't about us doing. It's not about us striving. It's not about even like proving something. Yes, there's an invitation and a command, but the invitation to relationship always precedes the command. So here, if we were to ask the question and answer it, what does it mean to abide? Verse 9, 10, and 11 is the answer. Because we don't often go here. 
we stop right around verse 5. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All right. But look at this, verse 9. As the Father has loved me. Stop. How has the Father loved Jesus? Think about that. How has God the Father loved God the Son? Because he's about to make a profound statement. Perfectly. Completely. From eternity past to eternity future. The purest form of love. As the Father has loved me. I have also loved you. It's not just like one and done past tense. This is a continual action. As the Father loves me, I love you. Does that not move you? Like, think about that. You want to know how much Jesus loves you? Think about how much the Father loves Jesus because Jesus is saying, that's how much I love you. And then here it is. You want to know how to abide? Here's the answer. Remain in my love. Remain in my love. Well, how do you remain in his love? How do you do that? Well, we look to Jesus because he actually gives us the answer. How did Jesus remain in the Father's love? Remain in my love just as I have kept the Father's commands and then remain in his love. He remained in his love through two things, trust and obedience. Trust and obedience. Now, before we get all up in the arms and start talking about that word obedience, we have to ask the question, what did Jesus know about obedience regarding the will of his Father? Like, did Jesus ever think that the will of the Father was burdensome? Like, like withholding good from him? Like, he doesn't know what's best, I know what's best. Jesus understood that the will of the Father was pleasing and perfect and where peace and joy was. But Jesus himself had to learn obedience, right? Like, through what he suffered because he was fully man and fully God. Like he had to actually choose to trust in the Father. Like think about the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying, Father, is there another way? Like this is like him wrestling to remain in the love of the Father. Like is God's will good? I'm, I, I, I'm gonna trust that it is. And because I'm trusting that it is, I'm going to obey it. And that choice of trusting on the Father's will as good is how he remained in his love. Because as he experienced the goodness of God and the love of God, it poured over into obedience. How do we remain in the love of Christ? You have to trust that he loves you. You have to trust that he even likes you. I know. Like, like he came for you and loves you and calls you friends. Like, there's nothing that could ever separate you from the love of Christ. Like, he loves you just for who you are, not for what you can do or what you should be. Like, we have to trust that, that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. We have to trust that he will only lead to life and only do good. That's a choice of trust. That's how we remain in the love of God. And as we solidify and resolve trust, we will obey. 
This is, my friends, the paradox of relationship. The deeper you trust a friend, the more natural you want to serve them. Right? The deeper the love, the more joyful it is to serve, the more joyful it is to obey. And he's saying, remain in my love. Listen, you need to trust me, and as you do that, obey me. Here's why I absolutely love. This is what hit me when I thought about this. When this landed, it changed how I saw friendship with God. Obedience never precedes relationship. Relationship always leads to obedience because of the love that's found in the relationship. So this still didn't help me so much with understanding what does it mean to abide or to remain in the love. And I remember studying the Greek and, and looking at the picture, the imagery of this word abide. And it's beautiful. The picture that it conveys is make your home in. Make your home in his love. Do you have a friend in your life where you walk in, there's no propriety, you're just like shoes off, foot on the coffee table, friendships where you can like freely walk into the pantry, right? You can freely open the fridge without even asking. Like that's kind of like a little bit of an idea of like making your home. Like there's a sense of like settling in, a place of relaxation, of security, right? Like, like I don't know what it is, but every time I go to a hotel, the first thing I have to do in a hotel room, I don't do this at home, but I have to do it in a hotel. I have to unpack my suitcase and put my clothes in the dresser. My wife's like, why would you do that? That dresser is just decoration. I'm like, I need to settle. Like, like that, this is idea. Have you settled in the love of Christ? Have you made his love your home? Rest in. That's how we do this. He's inviting us, make your home in my love. Make your home in my love. Because here, here we go. Why? Verse 11. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. So it could be fair to say that the level of our joy could maybe indicate how comfortable we are in the love of Christ. Do we still feel the need to have to prove something, to earn something? I have to produce the fruit. I got to try to earn God's love. I got to try to earn his favor. There's no way that he likes me. There's, so there's no relationship. This is just duty and performance. Like, we have to think about this. Man, like, friends, why is this joy? Like, we live in this world of constant deserving and earning. Like, there's no such thing as a free lunch, right? Like, we bring that concept over to God. 
Everything in life always feels like there's a quid pro quo, like I give, you give, like I have to earn it, I got to prove it. And we take that to God. And since relating to God is of the highest order, we feel our shortcomings and inadequacies and our pride all the more. So when we discover, when we discover that we can trust and relax in his love, you discover joy like you wouldn't believe. It will never leave. It will never go away. It's never going to be contingent upon your obedience or disobedience. He loves you. And when that gets, taking, when that gets into your heart, that is joy. But then he keeps going. He doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with this picture of saying, how much do I love you? I love you as much as the Father loves me. That's amazing. Make your home in my love. I'm telling you these things so that my joy may be in you and so that you can have joy in its perfected sense. Oh, but let me also tell you this, verse 12. This command, I give you love one another as I love to you. That's, that's the overflow of the relationship we have with God. No greater love than this to lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. This is not a bait and switch tactic. This is just a truth of deep, meaningful relationships. When I, like I said earlier, when you have a deep relationship with someone, you want to do that. That's what he's saying right there. But look at verse 15. I do not call you servants anymore because a servant doesn't know what his master is doing. That's like an acquaintance or a casual relationship. I've called you friends because I've made known to you everything I've heard from the Father. He's called us friends. That's not just for the disciples. Judas is part of this mix, right? Friends. Friendships can't be forced. They must be chosen. And then they must be pursued. Intention and attention. And I think there's part of it. It is not just a predestination free will argument. You did not choose me, but I chose you. We love because he first loved. I think this is speaking more towards friendship language. Friends share deep things about their hearts. I'm going to reveal to you my father's business, right? Moses and Abraham were called friends of God in the Old Testament. Israel knew about God, but Moses knew the ways of God. There was a deeper level of intimacy and vulnerability and transparency. This is what he's inviting us into. And it boggles me. Guys, like it, it really, really boggles me that like, Friends continue to disclose more of their hearts to each other. The more as the relationship grows, but God already fully knows us and he fully understands us, which is why it's absolutely amazing that he calls us friends. Right? Like, come on. Like, isn't there like ever a moment in a relationship you're like, gosh, I hope I don't discover this about you. Or maybe like you're actually thinking like, I hope they don't discover that about me. Right? But it's just like God already knows everything. And he's calling you friends. You're not friends with people you don't like. You enjoy your friends. He likes you. Yeah, yeah, God loves me. I get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
But it's a whole other level to say that God actually likes being with you. Like that, that is a hard concept for us to understand. We're comfortable with servant language because I have a sense of control. I have a sense of performance. I understand this. I can kind of keep you at a safe distance. But friendship language, this is hard. But this is beautiful. This is why we say simply Jesus. Because the whole piece to this is to remain in his love. So how do we choose to make our home in his love? This is where I want to look at Luke chapter 10, 38 through 42. This is going to be quick. I want to encourage you, spend time studying this. But I want to hit a few points here. Because as I talked about, there's three relationship killers. Busyness, distraction, and a habit my way kind of mentality. This is a story of two sisters, Mary and Martha, who really exemplify these two different postures. One who's made their home in the love and one who is distracted. So I'm going to read this. While they were traveling, Jesus and disciples to enter a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into their home. So Martha also kicks into hospitality gear. She wants to make a meal. Nothing wrong with the desire to serve. Serving's good. That's all well and fine. She also had a sister named Mary who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. Now, Luke is immediately painting two pictures. And for too long, a lot of times in church world, we say, well, these are the two types of people in church world. You got the, the doers and the servants. That's their personality type. And then you have the contemplative artists. They're just ones that just want to sit at the feet of Jesus. and all. It's like, no, no, no. That's not the point of this story. Because that, that's not fair to Mary. Nor is it fair to Martha. Like, they both love Jesus. They both received friendship with Jesus. They both are pursuing him. But there's something off in Martha's heart that we have to pay attention to. Okay? So Martha is distracted by her many tasks. And she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her to give me a hand. Whoo! Can you imagine the look on her face? The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, which is a vocative statement where Jesus is saying, I, like, I'm saying this in love. I'm saying this in love. You are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice, and it's not going to be taken away from her. So, serving is good. But the posture of her heart was wrong. This is important. Jesus actually rejected her service. There's a rebuke that she gives her. And it's kind of shocking. Right? She's in the kitchen and she's making a feast. And it's the word many tasks, I don't know. But like when we know at the Ziski household, when guests are coming over, we clean the house. Like we never clean the house. The house never looks that good. Never. But all of a sudden, it's like, it's crazy cleaning time. You know, and, like, and then you have the guests over, and you're like, why did we do that? Right? But it's just like, what, what was happening? Was she like also cooking like a 10-course Thanksgiving meal? Like, we don't know. But she was distracted by many things. And it's important to go, what was she distracted from? That is the key. 
What was she distracted from? The answer is in what Mary was doing. She was distracted from the presence of God. She was more concerned about what she wanted to do to please him than to actually choose to be at his feet listening to him. Now, here's, here's what happens a lot of times when we, we talk about this. We, we want to come to Martha's aid and defend her. And just say, well, no, you know, we can't just sit at the Lord's feet and be all contemplative all the time. Of course not. To think that Mary never served is, is a misnomer. It's like, that's not true. But to come to her defense is to actually agree with her and disagree with Jesus. When Jesus was actively rebuking Martha out of love. So this is so crucial for us. She was distracted from Jesus. And friends, I have a picture. It's gruesome. I get it. But this is a picture of what distraction looks like. Do we have this picture? It was a form of torture. Tie the four limbs. Horses all go in different directions. Do you know what they call this torture? Distraction. It's what the French called it. They called it distraction because you're pulled in multiple directions. Isn't that how it feels? And when you're distracted, you get busy, you get anxious, you get worried, you get upset. Nobody sees me, nobody doesn't, right? All of those things start to flare up, specifically in how we want to serve and please the Lord. Here's a brutal fact. The presence of Jesus became a pressure to her instead of a pleasure. It became a pressure. I have to do this. I have to do this. But to Mary, it was a pleasure. Martha was bothered by his presence, not blessed. And all of that anxiety and being upset created really bad reactions. She wasn't asking the Lord a question. <laughs> she wasn't asking him a question. Hey, Lord, well, can you just, you know, why is she doing this? Can you just tell her she's leaving me alone? No, 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 no. She's using the, the question to express her anger at Jesus. Why are you letting her do this, Jesus? One, she's breaking a cultural norm. Women do not sit at the feet of a rabbi. And Jesus is letting it happen. Mary, know your place. Jesus, I'm upset with you. Why aren't you telling her to do this? And, you know, all that kind of stuff. And then she actually has the arrogance to command Jesus what to do. Because she's distracted and worried and upset. Jesus, you do this for me. I'm doing something for you. Now you do something for me. Like all these things. And then she judges Mary. Like she's wrong. Friends, this is what happens when distraction and anxiety and all these things start to stir up inside of us. We begin to judge other people. Because they're not seeing us. They're not helping us. They're not recognizing. They're not doing what we're doing. And this is the right thing. Man, what Martha was doing wasn't bad. It was a good thing. But the posture of her heart wasn't right. And she was distracted from the best thing, which was sitting at the feet of Jesus. Friends, listen. Every yes you say, 
is a no to something. And every no you say is a yes to something. Distraction rules the heart that is not prioritized. If you do not know what your greatest treasure is in life, distraction will rule you. Mary chose what was best, which is this picture of she chose the better portion of the feast. Martha thought she was preparing a feast for Jesus, but really Jesus was the chef. I'm the feast. She chose the better plate. Friends, there's so many things in your life that you can pursue. So many things in your life that could look good. But there's one that will never be taken from you. Friendships, relationships, money, cars, vehicles, homes, all that stuff can be taken from you like that. One, one will never be taken from you. And that's your friendship with Jesus. Mary chose the better in this moment. So I want to just land with this. Some of you in this room may have never heard this type of conversation about interacting with God. Some of you have always thought this is about duty, religious performance. This is why I don't like going to church. It's all about this. It's about Christian-y things, all that stuff. Maybe this is the first time it started to click inside of your heart that, man, this is about grace. This is about relationship. This is about him pursuing me. This is about him wanting me to experience his joy. And out of that becomes love for others. If that's you, I would love to pray for you. Come on up at the end of the service and I will pray for you. Or even during the last worship set, come on up and I would love to interact and chat with you. But some of you in this room, like let's just be honest, you're so busy that you can't even remember the last time you read your Bible. Not trying to guilt you. We don't worship the book. We worship the person that this book reveals. And Jesus is the word. Like when's the last time you spent time with the Lord? When's the last time you listened to him? Maybe you constantly have this like notion, like I'm gonna get up, I'm gonna have time with the Lord and, and all of a sudden out comes the nomophobia and you open up your phone and check an email and you're like, oh, I gotta get back and your mind's really racing over here. Next thing you know, you're swiping. Or you're like, man, I'll do it when I have time. I'll get to it later. Jesus never struggled to find time to be with the Father. And he was busy. Some of you just need to just confess that busyness. Some of you need to confess distractedness. You're giving your heart to so many things. Your priorities are of, out of alignment. Maybe this is just a time for you just to say, Lord, I do feel anxious. I feel upset. I feel pulled and tugged in every single direction. Help me to realign my heart and make you number one. Because I'm telling you, when your relationship with the Lord is right and that relationship is being nurtured, peace triumphs over anxiety. Peace triumphs over worry. 
joy conquers the fear. So I want you to just do some work with the Lord because I'm telling you, Jesus wants you to experience his joy. Lord, I thank you for your word and I thank you for what it does to our hearts. I thank you that it's honest and it's um, straightforward. Lord, I just ask that if there's anybody in this room who's feeling the need to accept the invitation to trust on you for the forgiveness of their sins so that they can be reconciled with you and to have a relationship with you. God, I pray for that person that they would say yes to you and they would have the courage to make that decision known. And Lord, I pray that you protect their hearts through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, I pray for us as a church. Lord, I pray that um, our confession would be true and authentic. Forgive us. <laughs> Lord, forgive us for being so busy sometimes that we give you scraps. We know how important time and attention is for our human relationships. Lord, forgive us for presuming on that with you. Lord, forgive us for being anxious and upset and worrying. You tell us to be anxious for nothing. And you even say, cast those anxieties on me because you care. And, and you tell us to not worry. But Lord, our distraction and busyness is just an indicator of whatever treasures are in our heart. Lord, forgive us for those idols. God, may we be people who delight in knowing you, who desire to be at your feet and to be in awe that you would call us friend. Thank you for that invitation in Christ's name. Amen.